there's nothing special or different about trans kids. There's nothing inherently wrong with trans kids, especially trans kids, like all kids thrive when they are support and affirmed. It's just kids in general need to be supported and affirmed. And we know that trans youth without supportive parents really, really harms mental health and increase the rate of suicidality. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marion Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. On this special episode of the Amplify Nursing podcast, we speak with Dallas Ducar, a nurse practitioner, activist, and the CEO of Trans Health Northampton. We talk with Dallas about her fierce advocacy speaking up for gender-affirming care for all, her journey transitioning to the person she is today, and the Arkansas House Bill 1570, signed into law earlier this month, which prohibits access to safe health care for transgender and non-binary minors. So Dallas, hello. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So why don't we start by telling us a little bit about you and how you got into nursing? Sure, I would love to. Uh, so my name is Dallas Dukar. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I, uh, you know, I got into nursing really starting with uh, a very different, untraditional route. I was a philosophy major, and I was a philosophy major at the University of Virginia. And while I was studying philosophy, I was studying questions of ethics, questions of metaphysics, questions of the big, uh, sometimes boring to some people, but this stuff was really interesting to me, the big questions, right? How we live a moral life, how we know that we are conscious beings everything from one side of the spectrum to the other. I really love these big questions, but I, you know, I specifically was geared towards the kind of fundamentals too. And I was very interested in science specifically, how we know that we know stuff, getting into the scientific method. And then more specifically, I was very interested in neuroscience and the intersection between the mind and the brain and the neural stuff and our, how we know things. So I was very interested in this for a long time. I was studying philosophy and I just found that my idea of what a philosophy major was and a philosophy professor was, was just not the same as the vision that I had. I was imagining having dialogues, you know, outside of an ivory tower. And it just was not that way. I was imagining really a a world that is kind of beyond academia. And that was not what I had encountered. Along that time too, I found mindfulness and I found mindfulness specifically at a uh, school of nursing, at UVA School of Nursing. And I had a wonderful mentor who really taught uh, in a structured setting how to regulate oneself, how to come to understanding of oneself, how to approach things with a beginner's mind and how to recognize intention. And it was in that mindfulness class that I began to understand that 
that there was really a chance, an opportunity to slow things down and that had meaningful, deeply meaningful impacts on the body. I also came to understand that there was something that didn't feel really right in my own body. And that was really through the process of centering myself and really through the process of being with a teacher. And so it was through that process that I then became, I, I got to know the school of nursing. I was still asking these big philosophical questions. I was still very much interested in neuroscience, but I also was very interested in holistic care, provide, really recognizing the individual, from where they came from, their walks of life, everything about them, essentially. And, you know, I, I was thinking about medical school at the time, but I was also thinking about nursing school. At the end of the day, I wanted to do meaningful community-based research. I wanted to help people. And I wanted to still get to the root of some of these larger questions. And it was through that time that I became a nurse. I then went into my nurse practitioner track, focused in psychiatry, where I got to ask some of these big questions to, to folks every day. You know, why do you wake up in the morning? What's motivating you? Uh, what are your values? What are your beliefs? And in doing so, I also got to know a lot more about myself and specifically uh, embarked on a larger gender journey where I transitioned. I was able to finally understand and know myself as the woman I am today. And I found a, immense support. I was very lucky and I found immense support at our school of nursing at the University of Virginia. Since then, I've just been so grateful to still be able to engage patients on these larger philosophical questions while also really trying to think about healing and think about care in new and novel ways. And I'm excited to continue on that journey through nursing and uh, through some of the systems that we are trying to create here at TransHealth Northampton. So why don't you talk a little bit more about TransHealth? Sure, I'd be delighted to. So TransHealth Northampton is really a, a long, there's a long history to it. It started with the primary funder, his name is Perry Cohen, and he was just looking for gender-affirming care here in New England and really could not find a safe place and, and a, a, not even just a safe place, but a, a place that would be affirming for him and his family. And so he became committed to trying to make sure that that could happen. And there were lots of different routes that were taken, but eventually the decision was, why don't we just do this on our own? And I think there's something really beautiful to that, that the you know, trans and gender diverse community has oftentimes cared for itself uh, and really pioneered new ways of, of being and fighting for and establishing different types of care. In Massachusetts, 10 years ago, it was not uh, even thought of that you could have a gender-affirming surgery or uh, you know, a gender-affirming consult or hormones, and that would be really covered by all insurers. But through the activism of the trans community, there was a lot of push to expand what is considered medically necessary. And with that came just a lot more hope that an active and informed patient population can create new 
metrics for care and also get that care, create new systems, really. That's, I think we've seen that across the country, you know, there's not, it's not just about asking about pronouns. It's not just asking about, you know, names. It's really getting to know the individual. It's really creating an environment that is not just safe, but is affirming that it's a place where people can genuinely ask questions and can have all of their needs met in a real holistic way and be empowered. So what are we? We are, you know, the first independent trans healthcare center in the nation. You know, there are other FQHCs, other academic medical centers that also do provide gender affirming care, but we are the first independent trans healthcare center that focuses slow, solely on empowering trans and gender diverse adults, children, and families. We recognize sort of history as a community that trans and gender diverse people have really looked to each other for healing, for support, for affirmation. And we really want to honor that by providing comprehensive and professional health care and really opening our doors to trans and gender diverse folks and their loved ones. So not only do we provide care, but we're also really working to provide, you know, expert research, expert care, uh, fierce advocacy to secure a healthy, affirming future for all of us. Could you explain a little bit about what you mean when you say gender affirming care? Sure, of course. So there is no definition for gender affirming care that's necessarily out there. And many people can label themselves as a gender affirming provider, which is just some people might think they're gender affirming when they're not necessarily gender affirming. It really comes down to if someone's view of gender expansive enough at first to be able to be open to a diverse, uh, non-normative way of being, can, can you be able to see the many different types, expressions, identities that relate to gender. So that, you know, that means really not thinking in a binary way of male or female, but really thinking outside of that and really being, you know, encompassing, being, being aware and being able to conceptualize people as existing in many different ways with many different identities, you know, uh, binary or non-binary. Uh, but what that also means too is recognizing that there are, for many people, cultural relationships to their gender. And that then also requires a level of just, you know, understanding that people are complex and really being able to meet them with unconditional positive regard. That's really the first step. So gender affirming you know, on one level means creating that safe space where people can talk about gender and not fear a reaction from their clinician or provider. And then on another level, it's being able to create a space where you can be co-creative, where you and your team or your family can, you know, creatively understand and, and speak about gender uh, and not feel like you have to fit into any particular mold that's out there. It's really being able to be the author of your own experience. And that's really where we come back to this just being about patient-centered care, first and foremost. Gender-affirming care is patient-centered care. 
And that means listening to the patient. That means mirroring their language, paying attention, and really providing services that you have capacity for that meet the individualized needs of the patient. And while that sounds really nice and perhaps utopian, it requires a large systematic effort. You cannot just hang a shingle and say, okay, now we have the Trans Health Center. You need to have budgets committed to this. You need to have providers that are specifically committed to this. I would strongly recommend hiring from the gender diverse, the trans and gender diverse community. Uh, and it really requires a level of, of deep understanding it's not just about being nice to trans or gender diverse folks. It's about really thinking about gender in a different way and having your care reflect that, really. And so I could, I could speak more about how, you know, gender-affirming care is patient-centered care, but I think at the, just at the very core element, it is not only respecting someone's gender, but also really being there to be able to co-create with them. I think that's a fantastic definition. And as a clinician, I feel like most clinicians would like to think that they are respectful and, and being patient-centered. But I think what I gathered from what you're saying, what I'm learning from this, is that it's not just about you know, being respectful to the patient in front of you, but it's walking in there with this open idea of, I don't have an expectation as to what this person's gender is. I'm going to let them tell me and I'm going to go from there. Exactly. Yes. It's it's really about approaching this with a, a beginner's mind. And, you know, one might say, well, you're talking about gender. Now you're talking about patients. Now you're talking about care. I thought this was just gender that we were talking about. But really, gender-affirming care is patient-centered care because it benefits everyone. It opens the door to including any person's life context in that medical or clinical environment. Uh, you know, it's, it's more than what just happens in the clinic. It's the process of caring for every part of one's life that intersects with gender. And that doesn't just include the, the clinic or the care facility. It's you know, gender identity is deeply ingrained in part of who we are, impacting us in bathrooms, in workplaces, in schools, in, in many, many different settings. It really involves caring for the whole person. It really means we're going to care for one's identity. And that requires the healthcare system to be responsive to someone's identity, right? And, and that is a very different ask than just being responsive to you know, a, a specific subspecialty, uh, you know, making sure that we are, uh, that blood pressures are all, uh, you know, uh, within certain limits. This is now expanding our notion of identity and ensuring that we are approaching others' identities with a beginner's mind. Yeah, I think that's definitely a very novel approach for many people. I think that it's, it's a great start. And I think that there's a lot of learning and thought that needs to go into it and a lot of training for people in, mm-hmm. in the clinical space. And, uh, and I might just mention too, it's a lot of training and it really did not happen overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, 15 years ago, uh, uh, 
there were, it was a, we did a very different healthcare framework. You know, in the 80s, Medicare barred coverage for gender affirming surgeries and private insurers. Uh, whereas JEPA had 20 years later in around 2005, California uh, you know, had prohibited health plans from discriminating based on gender identity or expression. But that's not everywhere. And you know, the ACA had banned discrimination based on sex, and that can be interpreted as gender, and it was in 2010. Um, and then you know, HHS uh, is still, you know, had to lift a, a ban on gender identity. And then, you know, federally assisted insurance plans also had to remove exclusions for gender affirming care. So there are a lot of system wide downstream effects, whether it's the EMR, whether it's signage, whether it's how we assess a patient, whether we think they could be pregnant or not, whether we think they could have an organ or not. I mean, this really has, uh, based on how we approach care and how we see individuals' identities, it has really profound downstream effects in the clinical care that we provide. Looking at what's going on across the country, there's some legislation going on specifically in, in Arkansas and also in other states that is prohibiting treatment for trans minors. Would you like to talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. So I, I would first and foremost say that our country is really in the midst of an unprecedented wave of state level legislation seeking to block, you know, youth from accessing life-saving healthcare. Gender affirming care is life-saving healthcare. Hormones are life-saving, surgeries are life-saving, and, you know, just the ability to speak about gender is life-saving. And unfortunately, yes, the, this was uh, recently, Arkansas recently moved ahead, the legislature did. We just know that these medical ban bills are just really, really detrimental to youth and to the trans community. And they have myths that are just baked into them. You know, they, they, they claim that gender affirming care is experimental. That's really at the core of Arkansas's bill, HB uh, 1570. Uh, and you know, there's uh, been folks that have described it as at best experimental and at worst a serious threat to a child's welfare. And that's just not true. We have, you know, clinical care for trans youth that's grounded in longitudinal data and spans decades across the world. Uh, you know, internationally, gender clinics um, have been doing this work and you know, we have historical evidence of kids transitioning sooner than the word transgender was even used. Back in the, the 50s, the 30s, we have evidence from the 1800s and, and even before that too. So we know that this is not a fad. We also know that this is not experimental. When it comes to things like pubertal suppression, this is a treatment that's deemed safe for cisgender boys, cisgender girls, and it leads to decreased suicidal ideation in trans youth. Additionally, we have a, a ton of research that demonstrates improved quality of life after receiving gender affirming care for those specifically who would want it. We're not forcing this on anyone. This is just about providing a life-saving type of care. You know, we 
We know also that there are myths out there, especially baked into this legislation that gender-affirming care is just too available. That's not the case. We don't just hand out prescriptions for gender-related medications. In reality, you know, we're providing therapies for trans youth after a lot of consideration. As, as we talked about just earlier in this podcast, gender-affirming care is really multi-leveled, holistic, patient-centered care. And we're thinking about this from a medical perspective, from a mental health perspective. Medications are only provided after we, it's been determined that the child has consistent gender identity that really does not align with their sex assigned at birth. And only after there's been a thorough discussion around risks and benefits. You know, it's also highly individualized. And in many cases, trans kids actually don't end up receiving medications related to gender because that's not what they want. So this is really, really insidious legislation that is limiting the type of care that anyone can provide, a provider, a clinician, a nurse, anyone. You know, there's also this claim that these bills are protecting youth when that's just not true. You know, many youth still will seek treatment in very unsafe ways, like obtaining hormones through black market means, sometimes using online platforms to get advice on dosing. You know, just because you ban something, it does not mean that it's actually going to succeed in preventing that from happening. We've seen that in so many different areas in society. We really instead need to be focusing on how to provide more access. It's already very difficult to access. There's lots of you know, there's just a limited availability of local clinics, there's insurance restrictions, there's nothing special or different about trans kids. There's nothing inherently wrong with trans kids, especially trans kids, like all kids thrive when they are support and affirmed. It's just kids in general need to be supported and affirmed. And we know that trans youth without supportive parents really, really harms mental health and increase the rate of suicidality, which makes this a life or death issue. And these efforts undermine access to healthcare. I mean, especially in a pandemic, but this is scientifically rigorous healthcare. And these kids should instead be worrying about, you know, their friends, sports, school, and not whether these elected officials are going to undermine their ability to exist. It's just clearly an overreach by the state to be getting involved in these individuals' care. And even Asa Hutchinson, who was the governor, who is the governor of Arkansas and vetoed the bill, he had specifically spoke as to why this was an overreach of the state and how this was the state getting involved in between the deliberate choices between patients, families, and providers. So, uh, you know, I could I'd go on about this, but this is just really, really bizarre. It's bizarre, especially when Republicans have been so against state regulations in the time of COVID, and yet are now imposing restrictions on healthcare at the same time. And I think really many people clearly see this for what it is. It is an attempt to get more votes and to stir fear. Trans kids make up less the population than left-handed individuals in the United States or redheads. And so why are we having this conversation? It's because the GOP in those states 
is trying to create a, a flashpoint around a problem that just doesn't exist. I completely agree with you. It doesn't really make any sense at all from even just a logistical standpoint, taking out even the controversy that they're trying to create around trans people to try and legislate anyone's access to medical care. Even if it worked for 99% of the people, there's always going to be that one person that the rule needs to be different in order for them to thrive. And it just doesn't make sense on so many, so many levels. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about what it was like for you to transition and how much harder it would have been for you had a bill like this been in effect when you were trying to transition? Well, thank you. I, I'd be happy to talk about it. I will say that when I trans- started transitioning, I was actually of the age of majority. So I, I, could, I could actually consent to my own uh, treatments. But I will say that, you know, when I had initially transitioned, I did wait until I was able to not only make my own decisions as an adult, but also know that I would be able to afford gender affirming care. At the time, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I looked up how much gender affirming care would cost, how much surgeries might cost or medications might cost. And it required then me to have a conversation with my parents that I just didn't want to have when I was a kid. And it required me to, you know, there was no way for me to even begin to explore gender identity without also thinking about exploring that with my parents as a kid. And I did not have a a space that felt uh, safe to do that. And so I, I waited and I pushed it down. And I think that's what, you know, there's a, a lot of folks out there, I think, that will push their own dysphoria down just to get through. I'd like to change the conversation, though, around that. I think that's what I call a trans superpower. That is, you know, the ability for somebody to push through dysphoria, to actually be able to thrive, to be able to compartmentalize some things that might need to be compartmentalized at different times. That is a trans superpower. You know, there are so many ways in which trans folks have been resilient, resilient in the face of the government that is opposed to their very existence, resilience as opposed to systems that are just not designed with them in mind. They are designed with white cisgender men in mind and have been really vocal in being true to who they are as a community. And so I think that just really demonstrates the immense power that trans youth have. And for me, you know, I I survived, which not, you know, I was was privileged in some of the access to resources I had. And I also just really bared down and knew that I would not be able to transition as a child as much as I wanted to. What that did mean is that I found healthcare services at the University of Virginia when I was in college. And it was only because in a nursing class as a nursing student, there was a group of students that were doing a presentation on gender affirming care. And according to my professor that day, my eyes were just lit up and I was the most engaged that I had ever been in class. And I wanted to know everything about gender affirming care. I don't really remember that day as maybe 
vividly as the professor did, but I think she really saw something in my reaction. And regardless, I was able to, you know, transition at the university um, through their teen and young adult health program, which I eventually helped to provide some mental health services there as a student uh, and think about what their workflows would look like for mental health in a primary care setting. That still required me at the time as an adult to get a referral letter from a mental health provider, which I will 100% say is gatekeeping. You know, we shouldn't be pathologizing someone's identity. We shouldn't be saying that someone has to go see a mental health provider to get a verification that they are actually a certain type of identity that is just wrong on many levels. And at that time though, it was my only access. So I didn't know any better. I would say though, if if we go back to that time and if Virginia had also implemented a medical ban, uh, it's very likely that I would not have, especially if I was a, a child at that time, I just would not have had any ability to be myself. And, you know, I, kids are resourceful. I probably would have turned to other means. The effects, the mental health effects would have been deleterious. It's just a really inhumane piece of legislation. And my hope is that the ACLU is, and other organizations are effective in challenging the legislation because the effects that this would have on a very small portion of the population are tremendous. It's just, just really, really terrifying. And that's why I see organizations like Trans Health Northampton as hopefully a, a, a new hope, as a way to begin to focus on what is beautiful about being trans, what is remarkable about being trans, really, really focusing on what is right with trans individuals of all ages and in learning from the trans community, not, you know, just moving forward this narrative that trans identities should be pathologized. I also just see tremendous benefit in institutionally, financially, putting all of the resources behind a gender-affirming care center. Because I think what that does is it says when, when budgets are tight, gender-affirming care is never going to get any less of the pie because we are fully committed to gender-affirming care first and foremost. And I think the more organizations we start to see that are you know, comprehensive, independent, gender-affirming centers that are standing out as organizations committed to this type of work, the more difficult it will be to roll back any of the progress that has been made because you'll have, you know, your feet really planted in the ground as an organization. I think the more we start to see training programs, whether, you know, nurse residencies, physician residencies, APP residencies, whatever it may be, the more we start to see those formal programs, the more we start to see informal programs, the more we start to see pipelines that are dedicated to this work, the more we will be assured that there's just no way to, to roll back gender-affirming care and the progress that we've made. But what that also takes is really focusing resources in places where gender-affirming care is threatened. 
and that especially means you know supporting efforts in places like Arkansas. How do you see the role of nursing in supporting gender affirming care? I see nursing as a as a leader in this area. You know, nurses are taught from the very first day to be holistic. We are we are also taught that we are the you know, the number one trusted profession. And we take a lot of pride in that. We also are a discipline that, uh, and a profession that really is very patient facing, um, whether, whatever the, the subspecialty might be. And so as nurses, you are, you know, constantly using your hands or using your presence or, you know, really taught to be there with, the patient to have compassion and you know going back to the root of the word compassion uh, to be with suffering the root of the word patient also comes from suffering and so it's being with one who's suffering and really alleviating that suffering too and for nurses that requires being holistic and seeing gender identity gender expression different ways of being uh, different sexual orientations, uh, really understanding the context of the individual, you know, knowing that bodies can look differently and, you know, really celebrating that. And then also nurses need to be able to be trusted and, and create that trust, that atmosphere of trust with the patient. That trust is essential to gender affirming care. It is using the right language. It is approaching this type of care with a, an expansive mentality. It is, you know, not really focusing so much on the clinical interventions, but instead being able to have conversations outside of that. When I was a psychiatric nurse on inpatient unit, we actually had a patient come back and talk to us about what made them feel the most safe when they were on this inpatient unit. And, you know, so much of our interventions had been about, you know, locked doors, specific policies, procedures, you know, the, the stuff that we thought was really important, but also maybe a little boring at some times. And this patient said, you know, what really made me feel safe was a feeling of trust. And I felt that I could actually trust the custodian the most because he would sit down and he would play chess with this patient. And it was that simple act of kind of going outside of assuredly this custodian's job description and playing chess with the patient that made the patient feel seen, that made the patient feel that there was a, that they could trust others in the environment. And that's really what I think, where I think nursing can excel it is because you are so patient facing, because you are able to be with someone, whether it's during their suffering or their joys, because you're able to be there with a compassionate presence, there's so many opportunities to be gender affirming. They're just all over, you know, and it's about creating that culture of trust. And when you're able to be there with the patient time and time again, there are so many opportunities to create trust. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you would like to touch on before we go? 
for anyone listening out there, whether you are in healthcare, whether you are a nurse specifically, whether you're not, you know, there are many, many opportunities to learn from this work. And you don't need to be a specific clinic dedicated to this to really be able to learn from this work. We are all attempting to achieve what might seem impossible at times, which is restoring faith in humanity in a larger broken system that is the American healthcare system. And we have ways that we can do this, whether it's through robust clinical education, whether it is through the services we provide, but we all are trying to, at the end of the day, create a space that allows patients to show up and be themselves and clinicians show up and be themselves. And when it comes down to it, that is, I think, a recipe to reduce burnout. When you're able to create a space where folks can authentically be themselves. So when it comes back to you know, Republicans across the country that are trying to introduce different legislation, trying to ban gender-affirming care. I think the dialogue really needs to be focused on, actually, no, trans folks are vastly improving the American healthcare system. We should celebrate the expansion of gender-affirming care as a victory, that this is really about patient-centered care we are able to learn lessons from the trans community on how to really provide participatory, active, authentic, and holistic care. And anyone can integrate that into their own practice. You don't have to be any type of gender specialist. This is really just about returning to the basics of healthcare and putting patients first. I think that was beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Marion. Hello, Angela. How's it going? It's amazing. We just had a fantastic conversation with Dallas Ducar. She is a wonderful trans activist. It was an incredibly engaging conversation. I'm really excited for people to hear it. She is doing just incredible work and really needed work for the trans community. Yeah, I'm excited for people to hear this interview and to hear her talk about the importance of gender affirming care and the role that nurses can play in bringing these trans issues to the forefront. Yeah. And, you know, also making sure to highlight why the Arkansas bill 1570 that just passed earlier this month is so detrimental to transgender and non-binary minors. This is something that we as healthcare providers really need to be aware of and need to be speaking out against, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I don't think it's a great idea to restrict access to medical care at all for any reason we kind of talked about offline that, you know, even if you argue that it's good for most people, there's always going to be somebody who falls through that gap, who this care is so incredibly important. So the the logic just isn't there. If you even take out the controversy, I can't even believe there's a controversy surrounding, you know, someone's own personal identity. But even if you take that controversy out of it, 
it just, it still doesn't make sense. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to restrict anyone to getting access to what they need. Right. And what she said, it's, it's life-saving care for transgender and non-binary youth. And as healthcare providers, we have an obligation to provide life-saving care whenever needed, no matter who it's for. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Donato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.